Would you turn with me this evening to Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah chapter 6. We're continuing on in our look through the Old Testament, which will continue on through the spring and, and summer. And uh, we've been following along with some of the prophets. We've noted that while well, we started looking at the history of Israel and moving into the new land and, and then ultimately the, the first kings, at a certain point, the kings no longer became the focal point of Scripture. They have their own books, the Kings and Chronicles, but they're rather short accounts. Uh, for the most part, then, it was like God was operating more through prophets and using those prophets to speak to those kings. And so as we look at kings along the way, we're going to find them more in the stories of the prophets. And that's the case with, with a particular king this evening, Uzziah, whom we're going to mention, but he's not really the point of the passage. The point of the passage is the commissioning of Isaiah, but I want to set it in its context so we understand what it meant for God to commission Isaiah at this particular point uh, in Judah's life. So as we continue on looking at the prophets, and particularly the prophet Isaiah, um, Let's open first with a word of prayer and ask that God speak to us as he spoke to the prophets. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have spoken to us through the years. As we're reminded in Hebrews 1, you spoke through the patriarchs and you, you spoke through the prophets. But ultimately, now you speak through your son, Jesus. And yet a lot of this speaking came through you, Holy Spirit. And so we pray that even as you spoke to Isaiah and through Isaiah, that you would now use his story to speak to us and then to speak through us in this coming week as you would. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll get to the passage in just a moment. But every generation seems to have their moment when you ask the question, where were you when such and such a thing happened? I don't know what it will be for this young generation right now. Maybe it'll have something to do with COVID. Maybe there's something else yet uh, that is going to be the, that triggering event. I know for my daughter's generation, it was kind of, or for, excuse me, for the generations in their 20s and so right now, it was probably 9-11, September 11, 2001, when the terrorists flew planes into the World Trade Center and Pentagon. In the 1980s, more of my daughter's generation, it was the space shuttle Challenger exploding. For me, it was that day in June of 1969 when man landed on the moon. Maybe for a number of us today, it was November 22, 1963, when President John F. Kennedy was shot in Dallas, Texas. I was only three, just about four at the time. So it's not my generation's moment, and yet it's interesting that one of my earliest conscious memories is the funeral of JFK. His assassination, in many ways, paralyzed the nation. 
He was the leader of a new generation, the first president born in the 20th century, a leader of promise for so many people, but now the leader is dead. And people were asking, where do we go from here? Well, I use that story because the southern kingdom of Judah had such a moment. And it came at the death of King Uzziah. Look at Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. And notice how Isaiah begins that. In the year that King Uzziah died. That's all he says about him. But that said a mouthful to that generation. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Conclude there, the passage there for just a moment. Now, you may have read this many, many times in your life, but never really knew that it came at such a critical moment in Judah's history. Why does Isaiah begin with this historical context? Uzziah became king of Judah when he was only 16. He was a remarkable leader. Many of his accomplishments are listed in 2 Chronicles 26. Uzziah was a military genius. He built an army of 300,000 soldiers, and he built machines designed by skillful men so that they could both shoot arrows and sling rocks. Under him, the Philistines were finally defeated And other enemies like the Ammonites brought him tribute. Uzziah was a builder, fortifying the walls of Jerusalem so the city was finally safe. He was a technological innovator, an economic wizard, developing a widespread system of cisterns for gathering water and developing Judah's agricultural economy. Uzziah was also a spiritual leader, He was instructed and trained to follow God by a prophet named Zechariah, not the one the book is named after. But the Bible also tells us that he did what was right in the Lord's eyes. The greatest commendation a king could could receive. And Uzziah reigned for a long time. 52 years. 52 years. 
Think of what it would be like for the United States to have the same leader for 52 years. Over that last 52 years, the office of president has been held by Joe Biden, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George Bush Sr., Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, Gerald Ford, and Richard Nixon. 52 years. His fame spread as far as Egypt, and with the exception of David and Solomon, he was remembered as the most powerful king Judah ever had. Most of the people of Judah could only remember one leader ruling in Jerusalem. For their whole lives, Uzziah had been on the throne. He was their anchor, their source of strength and confidence. But now he was dead. And Assyria, an emerging superpower, was gobbling up little nations like Judah. The people were getting nervous. If Uzziah was still on the throne, he would know what to do. But the king's dead. What do you do when Uzziah dies? What do you do when your anchor breaks loose and you feel like you're cut afloat? How do you respond when the very thing you count on most falls away? What do you do When you lose your job, what do you do when your money runs out? What do you do when your rock-solid relationship begins to shake? What do you do when everything you were counting on begins to unravel and there is no more safety net? That's the question Judah was asking. What do you do when King Uzziah dies? And everybody, every Christian, certainly needs to ask the same question. What will I do when the things I most place my trust in fall apart, let me down? Then where will I look? Well, Isaiah learned what to do when Uzziah dies. He turns his eyes from the temporary earthly throne of a man to the eternal throne of God. Uzziah is dead. But God is alive. The the throne of Judah is empty, but the throne in heaven is occupied. The king of Judah is gone, but God the king will never leave. Isaiah remembers what we all need to learn. That there is one seated on the throne of heaven, and he reigns over the affairs of human beings. And so we read, in the year that King Uzziah died, in that traumatic time for the people, traumatic as, as an assassination of a president or, or twin towers getting taken down by, by revolutionaries. In a time like that, I saw who? I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So the picture is that they're not, he's not sitting in the palace mourning over that empty throne of King Uzziah. He's in the temple in his vision 
where the throne room is in the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant, and he sees this vision of God, high and exalted, seated on his throne. And the train of his robe fills the entire temple. And then we read, above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So he not only sees the king of heaven, but he also sees the angels that are ministering to the king. And this image of the angels is an interesting one. I think it communicates a spiritual reality to us as well. For we see that with two wings, they're covering their faces. This image reminds us that that the holiness of God, the unspeakable holiness of God, was such that they couldn't directly look at him. The Bible tells us in several places, no one can see God's face and live. And so they covered their faces. They didn't dare look directly on the glory of the Lord. With two wings, they're covering their feet. In those days, feet were a sign of earthliness, what connected people to the ground. So covering them was a sign of honor and respect. And it may have something to do also with how God called Moses to take off his sandals because the place where he was standing was holy ground. And with the two remaining wings, they were flying because apparently that's what angels do. So in a sense, they're approaching God with who he created them to be, with their gifts. In this case, the gift of flight. But it's not only their body language that tells Isaiah something, that tells us something about the glory of God and about the worship of God, but also their speech indicates God's holiness. Holy, holy, holy. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh in the Hebrew. Now, sometimes in the Bible, a word is mentioned twice in a row. But only if something is important and needed emphasis. I think I've mentioned it before, but in the Hebrew language, they don't have comparative and superlative forms. That is, you don't have holy, holier, holiest. You had to use repetition for that. So Jesus often says, although it's kind of covered up by modern day translations, often starts a teaching, truly, truly, I say to you, literally, amen, amen, I say to you. Repetition was a way of getting attention, saying, this is important, listen up. But only rarely is something stated three times which points to the ultimate of importance. And only once in the Old Testament and once in the New Testament is an attribute of God elevated to this level. And it's the same attribute, God's holiness. And it's found here in Isaiah 6 and what we read earlier, Revelation chapter 4, also spoken by angels. It's interesting, you notice God's never called loving, 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 or just, 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 even though he's absolutely loving and absolutely just. 
But only the holiness of God is repeated three times. Perhaps because it gets to the core of who God is. God is holy. That word doesn't mean, first and foremost, moral purity. It means he is set apart. He is wholly other, unlike anything else. That's what holy is. So when God says to us, be holy as I am holy, he's not first and foremost calling us to moral purity, although he desires for us to strive for that. What he's doing is he's calling us to be set apart for him rather than for the world. I like to think of the, the temple. There were lots of things that were holy in the temple. For example, the, the table of showbread in the holy place was called holy. The, the silver goblets that they used at times were called holy. That doesn't mean that table or those silver goblets were morally pure. It simply means that they were set apart for God's use and therefore for no one else's use. In other words, you couldn't go to the priest and say, hey, can, I, can you move that showbread? Can I borrow that table for, for our uh, garage sale? You couldn't borrow the silver goblets for a family picnic. They were dedicated for God's use and no one else. That's what it means for us to be holy, that we are set apart for God's use and nobody else, not to be used by the world but ultimately only to be used by God. Isaiah learned from the angels then that God is to be approached and worshipped with a sense of awe. Not casually. Spiritually covering our faces because His glory is too great to look at. Spiritually covering our feet because we're on holy ground. And spiritually using our gifts before Him, worshiping Him with all that we are, and crying, Holy, 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 because God is the ultimate Holy One, far above us and far above all else. Well, what happens when we encounter God's holiness? When Isaiah saw God, at the very same time, he saw his own creatureliness. He saw himself for who he really was. It's kind of like the difference between looking at your dirty car in the moonlight, saying, ah, oh, it doesn't look too bad. And then looking at it the next day in the bright sun and seeing that it's filthy. You know, we have a tendency to look at ourselves in dim light. Maybe in comparison with ourselves or comparison with others. But when Isaiah steps into the light of God's holiness, he says, I am ruined. I am ruined. Look at verse 5. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He says he's ruined because he realized the true condition of his soul. Do you know anyone that you would consider 
truly saintly. And when you think of that, that first person that comes to your mind that you would consider truly saintly, how do you feel if you compare yourself with them? Well, then imagine what it's like to compare ourselves to God, who's perfectly holy. Interestingly, the Apostle Peter reacts the same way to Jesus in Luke 5, verse 8. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Now, I don't think God desires for us to wallow in the mud of our sin, to to constantly be singing about what a worm am I. But there are times when we need to get caught short to get a right appraisal of ourselves. Kind of like an alcoholic who has to hit bottom before he'll get help. Or like the prodigal son we looked at this morning who had to reach the end of himself before he would return home. Isaiah hits bottom when he sees the holiness of God. And what he sees is his own uncleanness. When we see ourselves for who we really are in the the light of God's holiness, we become strongly motivated to be cleansed and made right. And Isaiah's ready for this. So God accommodates him. Look at verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Can you imagine someone approaching your lips with a hot coal? Lips are one of the most sensitive areas of one's body. Isaiah learned that there is real pain. There is a real sting to the process of confession and repentance. Some people think that experiencing God's grace means they'll never feel pain. Isaiah learned otherwise. Is there an area in your life today where you desire to be clean? When you look at God's set-apartness, is there an area where you realize you're not as set apart from the world as you should be? God doesn't cleanse Isaiah just for his own sake because God has a calling for him. Look at verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Not that God doesn't know the answer. He asked the question so that Isaiah can choose to go. Isaiah can, can not feel like he's forced into it, but it's something that, that he wants to do. He wants to be holy. He wants to be set apart for God. And God asks the same question of us. Who will go for us? Isaiah responds, here am I. Send me. You see, spiritually authentic worship, which is what Isaiah and the angels have been engaged in, spiritually authentic worship always ends with a heart that's that's willing to follow God. Coming into God's presence is not just so we can experience his glory or even repent and be cleansed. It's to offer a holy God our holiness that we wish to be set apart to serve a set-apart God. 
Now, God called Isaiah to go on and say and do some tough things. If you look at verses 9 and 10, he said, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, turn and be healed. That stuff's going to make it real hard to prophesy if they're closed up. So he had to prophesy God's anger to the people over their idolatry and disobedience. He had some tough days ahead of him. And yet, he was also given the privilege to prophesy a return from exile. New hope for a nation. And ultimately, in so many beautiful passages, the promise of the Messiah, Jesus. What's God calling you to do today? If we come to God like Isaiah, with a submitted heart, ready to be used for him. He can use us as he used Isaiah in remarkable ways. And I firmly believe that God has a call out to every Christian. The question is, will we say, here am I, send me. Let's pray. Father God, we want to be set apart for you, to be used by you, not to be used by our world, which seeks to use us so often. Help us to, to humble ourselves, to cover our faces and, and feet if need be in your presence and transform us to be truly set apart for you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.